I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Alan Catlin from upstate New York. He is one of America's more highly published poets, with over 60 books and chapbooks from a wide number of publishers to his credit. He's going to be sharing new work with us today, and then I'm going to be talking about a new anthology called Bettering American Poetry, Volume 2 a diverse collection of contemporary voices. Stick around, it's a good one. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Alan Catlin from upstate New York. After a long career in his unchosen profession as a barman, he retired to write his fictional memoirs, resulting in a book-length manuscript of linked short stories called Hours of Happiness. In recent years, he's been the poetry editor of an excellent online poetry journal, Misfit Magazine. You should check it out. And uh, over the years, he's authored over 60 books and chapbooks. He has a forthcoming book from Future Cycle Press called Wild Beauty and a forthcoming chapbook, Farmers on the Way to a Dance from Press a Press. He's also the winner of the 2017 Slipstream Chapbook Contest. So, Alan, I'm really glad you could uh, be here and to share some of your poetry with us. You've written so many things about so many different topics. It's good to be here, Charlie, and good to see you. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, As I said, you have so many things. I uh, Before we came on the air, I asked you what, what you'd like to feature, where you'd like to start. So just uh, tell the folks where you'd like to start and start. I'd like to uh, read from uh, Wild Beauty. As I was telling you earlier, um, every April I do uh, poems to prompts. There's a lady who sends out um, a a prompt a day. Um, One of the ones she did last year was uh, quotes from Charles Sinek. Um, And she sent about 12 of those. And instead of just picking out one to write a poem about, I decided to do all of them plus uh, a few that I dug up on my own from uh, my collection of his work. I like to read a couple of these. They're short and uh, they're kind of strange. And the, the book that they come from is very strange. That's why it's called Wild Beauty instead of something else. They're, they're all the poems in that collection are in some way related to art and beauty. And by what I mean by beauty may not be necessarily a classical sense, but I like to find beauty in things that are not beautiful. So I'll try a couple of these. I'll read the quotes first, and then I will read the poem that comes from the quote. And the first one is, uh, the sun doesn't care for ambiguities, but I do. I open the door and let them in. Let's party, they say, a gaggle of them the size of geese rushing in, all of them ecstatic as clowns released from their car, waving tiny pennants, blowing whistles, kazoos, party hats askew, as if my place was not the first stop on an extended tour of our neighborhood. Once inside, they raid the refrigerator, the liquor cabinet, head to the bathroom for the drugs, Nothing I say deters them. 
it's almost as if I do not belong here, that I am an intruder in my own home. Here, hold this, one of them says to me, handing me a large firecracker, the quarter stick of dynamite kind. He lights the fuse and laughs. I wait for it to go off. <laughs> a true story. Oh, wow. No. Um, the next one is uh, Life Haunted by Its More Beautiful Sister Life. The life exhumed from a graveyard, gone to swamp, and enshrined in a museum of dead objects, a place the looks that looks more like a bowling alley of the gods than a gallery with neon arrows hints on how to make a spare rather than works of contemporary art. This could be the place Alice discovered after falling down the rabbit hole after she stepped through her looking glass. Even the advice given for making spares is wrong. Still, the flashing arrows on the otherwise plain walls are beautiful to behold. Oh, now that one's a little strange, yeah. Bowling alley of the gods. <laughs> <laughs> Bowling alley of the gods. Uh, one more short one, and okay. uh, this is also a Simmons quote. The woman had a tiny smile and an open umbrella, like a doll on wheels, smears of rouge on her cheeks and wax lips that would melt in the sun. Her eyes are candy cane colored, and she has hair like cotton fluff spun into sugary strands that hang down her neck disappearing inside a raggedy Anne dress. I want to ask her what the umbrella is for, but the local bus arrives and takes her away. Just another little piece of surrealism. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, so you, you get poems working off of, you're, you're good at uh, proficient, let's say, at working off of prompts. Um, what, what's your typical like poetry practice? Is is that what you do? You uh, kind of randomly find things or do you settle down on a topic and try to work it? Uh, people who've written a lot of a lot of publications, I find, I find, seem to be able to do that. Like uh, somebody decides they want to write a series of poems based on album covers or some such thing. I don't know. What do you do? I, I do. Uh, that usually works for me, both of those. Um, and as you can tell with the, the Simich thing, that was a series. So that became almost a chap length, chapbook length series of poems, all working from a prompt, which are his, uh, his quotes from his work. Um, the other chapbook I mentioned, uh, The Three Farmers on the Way to the Dance, um, are all from photographs that uh, uh, August Sander did when uh, in mostly in between the two world wars in which he was trying to chronicle the length and breadth of the Germanic race in photographs as sort of a, a pictorial history of Germany. And um, the photos are just amazing, uh, I think. Uh, they're just slices of life uh, that you can get mm -hmm so much out of what would seem like an ordinary photo, but it, the things they choose to wear and how they present themselves in these uh, portraits are 
more telling than uh, most poems can can reveal, I think. It's just mm -hmm. tremendous. And what I do then, uh, when I do something like that, is I, I have the image already, so that that's good. But I sort of free associate once I can get a, an opening line with the photograph in mind and see where it goes. I, I usually don't know where it's going to go. The poem tells me where it's going to go. Uh, that That's sort of a strange technique, but it works for me. Yeah, you're uh... important. Uh, I, I'm trying to write a, an essay. I'm going to do a presentation in, in um, April for a community college to both a creative writing class and to some literature classes. And uh, I'm trying to uh, trying to write uh, about process and my process is so different though it's all related. It depends on the subject matter. I, I was called the man of a thousand voices because they tailor the voice of the poem or the person speaking in the poem or what's being written about to the subject matter. But it's very hard to talk about process in a specific way, but in a general way, that's how I do it is the free association technique. And then you gotta revise at the end but it helps to get, without the first line, I'm doomed. I struggle for the first line and then the rest is organic. Oh, that's that's interesting. And are, are you a, uh, like, uh, early in the morning or any time, or do you go to a, I'm asking you this because you are much more productive than most. So I don't usually ask people this kind of stuff, like, hey, do you use a pencil or a pen? But the idea of, of are you a morning or, or a, couple hours every day or when the mood strikes you or how does that work um generally i write at night because I, I used to work nights and i used to write all the time after i uh, work mm. and uh so that's sort of a habit but i can write anytime really uh especially now that i'm retired and i can just block out a time i don't write every day um unless i'm working on a specific uh, topic where I need to keep going while it's fresh. Uh, once in a while I do that, but on the whole, it's more of a uh, as the mood strikes type of thing. And I, I definitely write something every week that's related to something else. That's yeah. keeps me sane and, and focused. It's too easy to get lazy. But I, I just right now I have so many. Uh, general ideas that I'm working on that uh, that's focus is not a problem really. Oh, that's great. Well, let's, let's move on to some other, uh, some other poems. Uh, what, what would you like to do uh, next? Well, I'll do uh, some from the three farmers uh, book. Uh, sure. It got to be political. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be political. I, I read a book by uh, a fairly well-known poet who, also attempted the same subject, only he did 64 poems to pictures. And I, I said, I can't do that many. It's starting to get forced. So I did 20, uh, 23, actually, I think it was. And I did not like what he did at all. I thought what he did was superficial and facile. Mm -hmm. And because he has a name and he writes for all these big deal people mm -hmm. that uh, someone in the poetry yeah. center said, well, if you think that, uh, you do it. So I said, well, I don't know if I want to, but I, eventually I did. 
And uh, I'll just read it. They're, these are fairly short, too. So I'll read uh, maybe three of these and uh, Great. give you an idea where I'm going with this. And uh, these are chosen pretty much at random from the collection. There were different years, mostly in the uh, 20th. 1915, 1914, and, uh, and 1920, uh, the photos, they're all dated. Uh, Working-class children, there is something curious, something not quite right with these children. The two boys dressed in their Sunday best, heads shaved to the nubs like junior Kafkas before the metamorphosis or after the kinder transports. The girls are not exactly stunted, but have eyes that are far too far apart to be normal, seem unusually intense, or the kind of growing curiosities that would be out of place, would not be out of place in a Borges bestiary. There is a kind of native intelligence in all these children's eyes, the kind that is harmless now, but an adult's unspeakable. Mm. Um, student of philosophy, once you are known as the kind of man who asks questions and who expresses his opinions freely, you are the kind of man who is followed wherever he goes. There are no definitive answers to the problems a perpetual student poses. In a world where everything is brown or yellow, this is a dangerous path to follow. When they shoot him, they will do it twice to make sure he is dead. And this is the philosopher. And that's a, a, a quote at the beginning. It says, define your terms. He always emphasized staring directly at the young man on first days of class, each new term. Precision is all, ambiguity is for poets and mystics. We're very careful not to allow that kind of idle thinking here. Sometimes that last statement elicited a nervous chuckle, sometimes not. He is famous for his seriousness in a modest way, pauses after his preliminaries to pack his handmade pipe with scented tobacco, an affectation his colleagues sincerely spoke of behind his, sneeringly spoke of behind his back. Yes, men, define your terms. Pointed helmets, no man's land, barbed wire fencing, trench warfare, mustard gas, the war to end all wars. Oh, yeah, that one definitely turned dark. <laughs> no question. Uh, you really uh, you have, you have a lot of interesting illusions uh, in your poems, you know, uh, a junior Kafka before the metamorphosis. Well, that's what he looked uh, like. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what a junior Kafka is and he has no hair and he's got this <laughs> strange look in his eye, uh, it's kind of a caricature, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. But and then the image comes right to mind, but it's just it's just so cool that you thought of that. That's all that it happened to come to your mind while you're writing the poem. 
Yeah. And, and, and you also, as you said, you uh, are very interested in art and have written quite a bit about, about art, went through a phase of several years focused on art. Uh, so you, you bring all these different things, um, artsy things, you know, literature and, and visual art into your poetry, uh, which to me really enhances it, you know. Uh, what, do you, what, what have you got to do, uh, to do next? Well, for me, it was just, uh, I, I needed to uh, change direction. Uh, after years of focusing on specifically oral work, I needed uh, to try some visual things. And part of it, it came from, I didn't even realize it at the time, but when my father passed away, I was in the middle of writing about Turner's work. And uh, it seemed like when I got to the watercolors that he did, we had been following Turner. We went to Europe, we went uh, to several places in England that had his work. And the watercolors are stuff that really blew me away. It was much more uh, minimal and uh, very modestly color-based as opposed to these huge statements that he made when he was revolutionizing the whole concept of art. And I decided that I, I needed to write about the minimal instead of the expansive. Uh -huh. It became a kind of elegy for my father. And uh, now that I look back on it, uh, sort of a, a, a dying of the light type of thing. Uh, so these poems that I wrote about the art in, in this time did a, a, a very long spectrum of approaches and uh, from work like that, a very minimal and short and uh, impressionistic stuff to uh, extreme art, which became the working title for this, where I was saw an exhibit where artists were using non-traditional objects to make art. And I'm, by non-traditional, I mean things like uh, garden hose and uh, uh, pills. And uh, one guy did a map of uh, Philadelphia using different colored crack bags and on and on and on. Uh, statues of Elvis, uh, all these amazing little things. And it says, oh, this is too strange for words. But it all seemed to just the whole perspective and how you could think about not only art, but your own way of looking at art and, and, and your writing. So I got off into all these tangents, at, which to me is very productive. And so have you ever done any visual art or is it just a, a long time appreciator and, uh, you know? Well, I've never, I, I have absolutely no talent. Uh, an artist told me that, so don't even think about it, get someone <laughs> else to do it. <laughs> so uh, no, it's just totally, I like the concepts, the, the, what goes behind the thinking of creating a piece, especially in this extreme art. I tried to explain that concept uh, of uh, to someone who at a, a talk I did at the library uh, when I was talking about Whitman and, and why I like poetry in general. And this guy's a, a scientist and he hated poetry. A, there's no utilitarian purpose. And I try to think, try to get it through to him that not everything has to be utilitarian and, and, and no matter how strange or unusual it may seem there's a thought process behind that and that to me is what's really important and if you can apply that in a way that other people can appreciate then you've accomplished something 
even if it doesn't open the door or uh, send a rocket into space or blow up your uh, your relatives in Mongolia. Uh, that's what life should be about, is being creative and communicating. So you reminded me of what I wanted to ask you, which is actually, a, and no wonder I forgot, kind of a grand question, but like, is that, my question was, before you just said what you said, what do you think poetry does? Like for you, what's the point of poetry? You, you're compelled to write it, obviously. You've spent so much time and written so many poems. Um, what's poetry for? Well, I'm, I'm very, as I said, it, it's the communication is for, uh, there are things that can be said in poetry that can't be said in any other way, I don't think. Uh, it's a, uh, being able to get at something that's so intense and personal or uh, maybe uh, meaningful and being able to communicate that to someone else who may have share the same feelings or is looking for a way to express those feelings and uh, being able to maybe touch them in some place that really matters. It's, it's all in the ambiguity and the, uh, the evanescent, the, the things that can't really be totally defined and put your hands on it. It's almost spiritual. I'm not a spiritual person, but I, I do believe in that aspect of this spirituality that we all share a common humanity and through poetry we can we can touch each other in that place. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. All right. That's good. That's what I'm just wondering exactly how you would we would articulate it. Uh you sound like you might be the kind of person who would uh do, do you what do you think about the statement when people say sometimes the work of art speaks to the artist like it tells you what you want to say? Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, sometimes it, it it works better than others, of course, but that is what I uh, I see. You have a, if a piece of art I can relate to. I, I think I see what the artist is saying, and sometimes it's immediate. I can look at this and I say, well regardless of what is in the picture specifically, I can see the way he relates objects together, the way the, uh, the things interact, that this is what's in his head or her head. And um, that's important to me. That's where I can be able to uh, get at the essence of something and maybe produce something myself that relates back to that as a statement about it. And with your own poetry, do you find the, the poem while you're in the process of creating it like kind of speaks back to you and tells you where to go next or gives you notions of what, what else should happen. Absolutely. Uh, in right. the free association pieces, it's certainly, uh, yeah. as I said, it's organic. And in that sense, uh, it, it, it has to reach a certain point at the end where uh, it, it meets or comments on what's at the beginning and make a logical sense at yeah. some point it may be jarring it may be uh uh off key but it, it it all has to have a logical sense to it i think okay well we've got time for another uh like poem or two and then, then we'll wrap it up so uh got something there you'd like to read now um well since i i, I won the contest i'm uh the with the blue velvet these are 
I am so into this movie thing now that uh, I, I don't, I'm trying to end it, but it will not go away. But I'll, I'm going to pick one of the shortest ones, and there's a reason for it. I think it will be obvious for it. Um, the, the, the collection is Blue Velvet, and, uh, of course, that refers to the David Lynch movie. Right. Um, I'm a huge fan of his, uh, at least that movie and a couple of the other around that time. Uh, this poem is uh, the last poem in the collection, and it um, it's called Penny Dreadful. Night like some penny dreadful setting, shadows and light, street lamp glare and recessed doorway caves, no exit, one-way black tie lane, slick with early morning mist, still as a withdrawn breath, waiting for a third man clone who never comes, a woman with no soul, fresh red lip gloss for a Judas kiss. Solitary footsteps, high heels on concrete, staccato as buckshot slung against sheet metal. The opening click of a Zippo lighter, flame to cigarette, red ember dot, the click of a Zippo closing, the pause in mid high heel step, an inhaled breath release, smoke rings in damp light, one man, one woman, separate as any two objects can be, their elective affinities drawing them together somewhere in the dark to be continued. Do you have any comment you'd like to make on that poem before we wrap it up? Oh, it's the image. Uh, they, uh, uh, well, these poems are, are all related on a noir level. Most of them are not um, mm -hmm. are A-list movies that you would see in the theater. Most of them are art films. And um, the whole working title, for the, which is now I'm working on the seventh chapbook, is Holly Weird. And uh, <laughs> I think that about uh, gives you some idea of yeah. uh, the unification of idea and image for these Agreed. a dark place in the night two strangers meet and what happens who knows <laughs> beautiful your free association will tell us eh? Yeah. well alan this has been great i'm really glad we could do this uh i'm charlie rossiter you're listening to poetry spoken here you're listening to poetry spoken here We've been hearing the poetry of Alan Catlin from upstate New York. And now I'd like to talk a bit about a new anthology called Bettering American Poetry, Volume 2. If you're looking for a collection of poetry from a talented, diverse group of poets, you will appreciate this book. The contributors are young, outspoken, and uncensored. But don't think of this as a fringe group of voices. These are well-credentialed poets with fellowships, residencies, awards, advanced degrees, and books published by publishers all of us know well. The contributors are gender and culturally diverse. They are the voice of the current and emerging America, the antithesis of what narrow-minded, backward-looking people think of when they think of the United States. Here's what Sarah Clark from the editorial team has to say about the project. We feel that to better American poetry is to jam dominant systems of taste, 
to the best of our abilities and to re-signify the very phrase, American poetry. We intend to center voices of resistance, subjectivities that emerge from the radical margins. In short, poets and poetries that are urgent and necessary, but do not get along nicely with power. That's what she has to say. Now, it's hard to give a representative sample of the collection just because the voices are so diverse, but I'm going to give you a sampling, at least, of some poems that that struck me. This first one is by Zina Hashem Beck, and the title is There Was and How Much There Was. That phrase may sound a little strange to you, but it is a traditional opening for Arabic tales. And it roughly translates into Once Upon a Time. So, there was, and how much there was. Women gather in this living room. They empty and fill the coffee cups. I count the flowers on the curtains when we... I get bored. Try oil. I like the glide of our bodies in the night. My friend's mother showed her a video about it the week before she got married. I was still single, and I asked. No one would tell. The women laugh. The walls don't have ears here. Everybody is a woman here. Some women bleed. Some don't. Did you? Every woman bleeds one way or another. And that's just the beginning. This is a seven-page poem. It's really intense and interesting. Here's another. This one. I love the way this is presented in the book. It's by Tafisha A. Edwards. And she uses italics to tell you which word in the line to emphasize. The poem is called, Everywhere in the World They Hurt Little Black Girls. Everywhere in the world... They hurt little black girls. Everywhere in the world, they hurt little black girls. Everywhere in the world, they hurt little black girls. Where in the world, they hurt little black girls? Everywhere. In the world, they hurt little black girls. In the world where every little black girl hurts, hurt every little black girl. In the world, black little girls everywhere in the world hurt. That's about half of that poem. And so, as I said at the outset, this collection pulls together a diverse set of voices reflecting what's going on in American poetry today and what's going on in American society today. If the Norton Anthology is still around in 20 years, I wouldn't be surprised if it contained work from a number of these poets. That's Bettering American Poetry. Volume 2. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. 
For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.